So we are in our next um, portion as we study the Gospel of Mark. And please would you turn with me to Mark chapter 4 and verses 35 to 41. Mark chapter 4 and verses 35 to 41. And we'll read these seven verses. That day when, G- when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Uh, It's a story that we're very familiar with, isn't it? Um, That we've just read this morning. Seven verses I think it's great how something that um, maybe we think we know very well comes alive with a bit more focus on it. Um, I can't remember an easier job, uh, not in in preparing the message, but in selecting an opening hymn. Um, Carest there not that we perish is taken verbatim from verse 38 in the King James Version. Uh, It made me wonder how many hymns there are with Uh, direct line of scripture represented and I think the words and the tune combination uh, that we've sung are hard to beat when considering uh, how well they match the tension and relief details in the subject matter that they represent the storm the crescendo of the tension how it builds and then the amazing relief Um, Storm Aisha and Storm Jocelyn have recently, recently battered the UK in quick succession I think that Quite delightfully, helpfully, uh, the Lord has our minds a bit tuned uh, to his word today. We're primed a little bit, aren't we, to get our heads into the situation, given what we've seen, heard, experienced in the last couple of weeks here in Manchester and the rest of the UK. I thought the storms had gone and um, on on Friday morning, I thought the weather had died down. But in the early hours of Friday morning, um, you could hear the wind and the rain lashing against the house. That's Friday just gone. And There's a deep gratitude, isn't there, that you're inside and a deep respect for the power of nature. We'll come to that again a little bit later. The lake is the Sea of Galilee. It's a body of water with a shoreline 680 feet below sea level, which is quite unique. And it's a feature in the reason for what happened. Uh, It's surrounded by hills. It's 13 miles long, 7 miles wide, and it is 150 to 200 feet deep. The Sea of Galilee is surrounded in a basin, surrounded by mountains. It's it's particularly susceptible to sudden uh, and violent storms. Cool air from the Mediterranean (coughs) Sea is drawn through the narrow mountain passes and it clashes with the hot, humid air that lies on the lake, which, as we've said, lies below sea level. So sudden storms can appear without warning. We know that when cool air and warm air mix, then there is uh, potential trouble ahead. And so the the water can be stirred into violent 20-foot waves. 
The boat that the uh, disciples and Jesus were in here was probably the kind familiar to many of Jesus' disciples who were fishermen. The lake was an important part of the local economy. Josephus, who was one of the ancient historians, documented that there were usually more than 300 fishing boats on the Sea of Galilee at any one time. So we also know that the boat was large enough to hold Jesus and his 12 disciples. It was likely powered by oars and sails. And it's likely, though, that during a storm, routine practice would be to take the sails down to keep them from ripping uh, and to make the boat easier to control, which would reduce the effect of the power of the storm on the boat, which would be the humanly practical thing to do in that situation. Uh, and look out a little bit later for another thought about what to do uh, when the wind hits. The disciples hadn't foolishly set out in a storm. It's not that they understood Jesus' direction to go over to the other side of the lake, looked at the weather, saw a difficult sky ahead, and thought, we'll go anyway. The weather was clear. The disciples were only following their leader, Jesus' direction, to go to the other side, and had subsequently been caught without warning, and they were in great danger. We read that the boat was nearly swamped. The King James Version says that the waves beat into the boat so that it was now full. And we'll have a thought a little bit later of what that actually meant too. So these guys, the disciples, were, some of them, quite a few of them, were seasoned fishermen who'd spent their lives fishing on the lake. Uh, and all of them were disciples who had witnessed many miracles. But during this squall, the combination of people who had seen the power of the Lord Jesus and the combination of experienced fishermen, nevertheless, they panicked. Um, it must have been serious because, like we said, some of these guys were seasoned, experienced fishermen and they just didn't know what to do. It had been a long day. Jesus had been teaching a large, large crowd of people seemingly the whole day. In the last two weeks' talks, Ian and David have explained uh, a little bit about the parables and the teaching that Jesus had been engaged in during that same day. Uh, they must have been tired. And you can imagine that as part of the teaching that Jesus delivered and the, the picture messages that he delivered, there must have been many questions that the crowd had asked. So you can imagine at the end, as we all do at the end of a day where we've worked hard, they would have been looking forward to getting away from the work and resting. I have um, indelibly etched in, in my mind the words of a school assembly, which is obviously quite a while ago, but from years ago when I heard a really neat explanation of what a parable is. I think Ian mentioned it last week, but it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And that's what Jesus had been about all day. The next step was to head, as we thought, to the other side of the lake. And it's a true story. It really happened. It describes a specific incident with specific people at a specific time. Earlier in the day, the pictures that Jesus had painted, um, in, uh, the, 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 the stories that Jesus had painted or the pictures that he painted in the people's minds um, the sower with the seed, someone with a lamp in their house. They were heavenly truths taught in easily resonating references of the day. They didn't necessarily um, represent specific people. But the seven verses that we've just read of the story of Jesus calming the lake did have specifics. People, place, time, event. And while this is the case, I'd also suggest that the story is uh, parabolic if we imagine our lives in partnership with the Lord Jesus Sometimes when we are caught in the storms of life, 
It's easy to think, isn't it, that God has lost control and that we are at mercy of, wind, of the winds of fate. But the real truth, as we've seen from the story, is that in reality, God is sovereign and God is always in control, while that might be sometimes very difficult to get to grips with. So part of the story is, isn't it, about practising our faith. Uh, it's a challenge to each of us. Jesus had talked that day about God's kingdom, a place where his rules apply. It's a place of faith. I heard one commentator retranslate Jesus' question to the disciples, which was, where is your faith? The comment was, where is your faith? Get it out, which is quite a challenge, isn't it? As we think about the calming of the storm, Jesus, as we have said, suggested that they all move on. Let us go to the other side. He was their leader and he knew where he was going. He had to continue his ministry on the, on the other side of the lake. So he knew, what he, he knew where he was going and he knew what he was doing. And of course, the disciples agreed. There was no reason not to travel. Um, I found a little, a slightly curious phrase in verse 36. Um, I'm not sure of its relevance, if at all. Um, in, 35, in verse 35, Jesus indicates that they need to travel to the other side of the lake. And then in verse 36, the NIV says that uh, they, his disciples, took him just as he was. The King James Version says they took him even as he was. Um, I'm not sure if I'm highlighting something that doesn't need to be highlighted, but uh, it's something that um, I need to go back to later and, and have a think about. But what about the fishermen? They were experienced sailors, as we thought. They knew this patch of water, but it seems even this was out of the ordinary for them. The disciples who weren't nautically skilled as the storm arose, likely, isn't it, would have automatically looked to the experienced guys and said, what do we do? It's a bit like when you're in the presence of a, say, a subject matter expert in something, you look to the people who have the knowledge. Um, but the, the resonating message from the disciples was, this is serious, we're going to die. We're not going to make it. And it was serious. Sometimes when something happened, there's an aftermath, isn't there? When something has occurred, when something has occurred uh, and you're trying to make sense of it. Um, maybe after this had happened, um, some of the disciples are maybe alone in their thoughts. It's very likely they're all saturated. Some of them maybe are bailing out the remaining water in the boat. Some of them are just maybe looking at each other dumbfounded uh, and they were trying to take in what had happened. And from a furious squall to completely calm, it seems it was almost instantaneous. And there's a contrast. Um, have you ever carried water in a washing up bowl and put too much water in it? And you start to take it where you need to take it and you realise you're in trouble. Have you ever done that? I have. Um, as the water starts to slosh around. The energy, of movement is, of, the energy of movement is transferred to the water. And you know it's going to be very difficult to get the thing to calm down. And for disaster to be averted. Especially if you've got a new floor. Um, imagine if you were in that scenario in your house. You're carrying a washing up bowl of water. You think I'm in trouble and the water just stops sloshing immediately. You'd be stunned, wouldn't you? You'd be absolutely stunned. You wouldn't forget it. You know, the blokes would go down 
the pub maybe and speak to the friend and say, do you know what happened to me? I, I averted a disaster. I was about to damage the floor and it just stopped. Um, you'd be very grateful. You'd be stunned. And that's what happened here on an absolutely massive scale on a lake 13 miles wide and seven, 13 miles long and seven miles wide. Um, we've all experienced the storms of nature, haven't we? And felt the relief of the quiet aftermath and the contrast itself is energizing, isn't it? Because you kind of feel the power that's gone and think, wow, that was amazing. Um, it's a bit like the energy and power you understand when you see a glint of blue on a gloomy gray day or the reverse on a sunny day when a cloud covers the sun and you feel the temperature drop and the contrast and you understand a bit more about the power of the natural world and you feel it. Verse 39 says that Jesus rebuked the wind and spoke to the waves. Um, the initial thought in my mind was it was a bit like a parent talking to obedient children was my sense. It's like the perfect, perfect parent of total mastery of the things that are under the parent. The word used for rebuke has the thought of censuring, admonishing. It's the thought of forbidding. If you forbid something, you've got authority over it. And that's one of the things we learn from this story is, is of Jesus' power over the natural world. I'm reminded of what Paul wrote to the Colossians in uh, Colossians 1, 16 and 17. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and, in, and invisible. All things were created through him and for him, and in him all things consist. So the storm was controlled by the power and the words of the Lord Jesus, and it stopped almost instantaneously. We'll look a little, about, a little bit about um, Jesus' ability to sleep. The waves were breaking over the boat. It was nearly swamped, and Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. Uh, I read that in these type of boats, a cushion, uh, or in some boats, was customarily kept under the coxswain's seat, and that's the person who steers a ship or a boat and shouts direction to the crew. As we know, Jesus was asleep in the stern of the boat, that's the back of the boat, and that's where the rudder would have been. How appropriate is it, I think, that the Son of God was asleep in the cox's position? Uh, the person in charge where the instrument is that guides the direction of travel. We know by now that the, stern, that the, boat, that the storm had taken full hold, and the disciples were really in a really, situous, really serious situation. The, the NIV tells us that the water ingress had swamped the boat, uh, the King James Version uses the word full. And the thought, uh, the, the word that's used is the word gemizo. And it's, it's like, a, you can't really have fuller than full, can you? But the word gemizo is about the being entirely full. Uh, maybe like if I think I've got a washing up bowl full of water, it's not totally full, is it? But the thought is in the word gemizo, it's one step more in the language than the word gimo which is almost Mark saying that the boat was exceedingly full, i.e. next stop, sinking. We do know that Jesus was asleep, and that in itself is amazing because um, he would have been saturated. Some have suggested that he was totally exhausted after a really busy day of teaching and explaining. Uh, others have suggested uh, that he's at one with his father. We know that he said that I and my father are one. 
Like I've said, we understand that the boat was holding a lot of water, so Jesus must have been soaking wet, like the disciples. So whether he was massively exhausted, or just delighting in sleep and trust in the presence of his Father, we don't know. But I think the two um, are a beautiful picture of the, br- the bridge between Jesus as a man, exhausted, his humanity, and his deity. I and the Father are one, and he's asleep, and he's soaking wet. Is it because he's exhausted? Is it because he's in full communion with his Father? Well, it's a beautiful picture of Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is accused of not caring. Don't you care if we drown? This is quite a strange one, um, in a way. The disciples interpreted Jesus being asleep as him not caring. As we've said, it's a humanly speaking very serious situation. The boat was filling with water about to sink. It seems likely that that was about to happen uh, and you would, you would envisage substantial loss of life for the people there. It's quite easy to be critical, isn't it? And have a 20th cent, 21st century view of this story. But how could the disciples have envisaged what would happen next? I was trying to re- reconcile it in my mind a little bit, the fact that it, they'd expressed their concerns to Jesus as they did. I wonder what they expected. Um, Jesus to do. It seems that his mastery over the elements was a total shock, uh, and not a positive one, but a terrifying one. My initial thought that was being terrified was quite a curious reaction, but as I've thought a bit more about it, I can understand it a little bit more. We're talking about understanding more about a kingdom where faith prevails, as was the subject matter of the day in Jesus' teaching. And it's not something we can uh, easily see, well, we can see or fully understand, is it? And that can be unnerving, but it is one um, that we can fully trust in. I kind of imagine in the back of his mind, um, and we, and we, we, can, we can portray these thoughts on the situation of Jesus thinking, don't you care? Um, and the response could have been, well, that's why I'm here. It's why I'm in the boat with you. It's why you need to be in this with me. It's why you need to see my power, who I am. And why Matthew, Mark and Luke, each of you, you'll never forget this because you're going to write it in your gospel so that the people in Manchester on the 28th of January 2024 are going to hear about it again, about who I am and learn a bit more how they can trust me with everything, even when it seems like it's going wrong. Don't you care? Of course he did. Don't you care? Another separate study, maybe to think of someday, it triggered in my mind, was how Jesus answers questions. Uh, He didn't answer the question directly, did he, with words. Um, It would be a really interesting study, as I've said, to look at how Jesus answers questions. Uh, We'd learn a lot, and if we applied those uh, learnings consistently, that would be quite a thing. The question was answered non-verbally. Jesus spoke to the elements, as we've thought. So the roaring of the storm has gone and there is a surreal quietness and the contrast I think is well I know that when I've been in a storm or heard a, heard a storm and the quiet it's almost otherworldly isn't it um, there's the thought of what could have been the near-death experience um, and in this situation the disciples have seen something that how do you object, with, with an adjective of the world that you know describe something that 
you would never have thought of. Um, and the disciples, they're friends with each other. They're looking at Jesus um, and he connects with each one of them, not missing anyone, you imagine. And he says, and the words that sting, and they sting to me, and they would sting to you, where is your faith? And you would feel the rebuke, wouldn't you? Um, which would likely have been intended. Um, and presumably, as it was evening, it would probably have been dark, they made their way to the other side of the lake. Uh, as they carried on this journey, you can imagine them turning the question over and over in their minds, where is your faith? Where is my faith? Where is my faith? Um, the rebuke still stinging. Don't I trust God? Um, isn't the Father with Jesus? That's what he said. They thought they'd believed it, but maybe the storm proved that the confidence they felt when the pressure was off was fair weather faith, and they certainly would have felt chastened and humbled. I know I would. And maybe as they thought more about the question, where is your faith, the more profound it became. Where is my faith? When the storm hit, what did I trust? Putting myself in the position of the disciple. Well, I trusted what my eyes saw. I trusted what my skin felt. I trusted the violent force that was tossing the boat like a toy. I trusted in the narrative of other people's experience of storms and how they kill people and how they destroy families. I focused and I trusted and I respected more in the power of the storm because it kills people. And all of these thoughts would have been, would seem like common sense, but Jesus had changed everything for them. Maybe Jesus goes back to sleep and in turn the disciples, they're going back to their pre-storm positions as they cross to the other side of the lake. Maybe they look at each other with a massively changed view, at, at Jesus, hopefully with a massively changed view. Maybe they look at him sleeping with the words of Psalm um, 135 in mind. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord does, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. So where is our faith? It's based on what we have in this book here that we're reading this morning. Um, one of the great enemies of hope that we have in a world which is dif difficult to navigate, isn't it, with all the things that we hear and see, uh, is one of the things, one of the great enemies of our hope is forgetting God's promises and reminding, of, reminding ourselves of them is a great ministry. Both Peter and Paul, um, in their letters that they wrote to the earlier Christians and churches, were exactly for the reason of reminding. Peter, in 2 Peter 1 and 13, wrote, I think it right to refresh your memory. Uh, and Paul's letter to the church in Rome, in Romans 15 and 15, says he wrote to remind them again. Lamentations 3 and 21 says, This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Uh, in John 14 and 24, John's Gospel, um, Jesus' words reminds us of the key helper in reminding us of what we, we need to know is the Holy Spirit who comes to live in us when we accept the Lord Jesus as our own personal saviour. But that doesn't mean we should be passive, does it? Um, we are responsible only for our own ministry of reminding. The first one in need of reminding by me is me and you is you. Um, I'll clarify that in a second. So our minds have great power, don't they? Um, our minds can talk to itself by way of reminder. 
This I call to mind, the writer in Lamentation said. So this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. This I call to mind. So I'm remembering something that I've already heard. I'm borrowing there some devotional words that I, that I read related to this. Um, which go along the lines of this, like this. If we don't call to mind what God has said about himself and about us, we languish. Let's not wallow in the mire of godless messages in our minds like, I can't, they won't, she never, it hasn't worked. Some of those words might be true. And the point isn't that they're true or false, because our mind will always find a way to make them true, unless we call to mind something higher, something greater. God is the God of the impossible, and reasoning our way out of an impossible situation is not as effective reminding ourselves that God does impossible things and we've read that today um, the devotional thought continues uh, this is the great battle of my life the speaker says and I assume, assume yours too and when I read that I put my hand up the battle to remind myself and then others I was gripped by the thought of bringing of calling something to mind something greater our faith is based on on what is in this book which is the word of God, and as we thought often, it's living and active. In last week's talk, Ian reminded us of the power of God's word and how God makes it grow. It has an unstoppable force. The farmer's responsibility was to go about his daily routines, even when there was nothing often to show for it, as he trusted that the seed would grow and do its work. And I think that's the point here, exposing ourselves to the words that God has given us in his word and to keep going in it, even if we don't fully understand it, um, waiting for that unstoppable force to reveal itself in our understanding. It's not about us, except putting ourselves in the place where God will do the work. As the writer to Lamentation said, this I call to mind. Um, I personally can attest to the power of a word in this book, not, a, not as often as I would like to, admittedly, but the power of the word attaching itself to you and giving you strength. Um, you're aware of the situation around you, but you know that you're in a sheltered spot. It's like that being wakened by the rain lashing against the side of the house and being grateful that you're inside. The storm is still there, but you're standing on something that's more secure. The disciples' reaction, who then is this? Uh, I always looked at that from uh, our point of view, knowing the awesome power of Jesus based on my full understanding of what we read in the, the whole of the Bible. But if you look at the reaction of the disciples after he calmed the storm, this has been a next level experience for them, hadn't it? And they just didn't know what to think. They'd seen his miracles, listened to his teaching, included the, the parabolic stuff earlier that day, but controlling the elements, it's not what they expected. There's also our projection of where they were in their experience. It's, Important that we get down with them in their understanding in this story. We have a greater now, a greater perspective now than now uh, than they did then. They were terrified. Who is this? By the time Mark, to, Mark came to write his gospel um, and his account of the Lord Jesus' life, of who this man was, he fully answers the question, given his full exposure to the rest of Jesus' life and the ministry that happened after this story. Mark one and one the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark saw many events after this one. He spent more time with Jesus 
Um, and um, he, the, pro the proclamation here um, was to read as much as we can of the good news that God promised uh, of salvation through the life, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Mark chapter 1 and 1. This is a story of um, somebody who can command a killer storm to die when he pleases. And maybe uh, as the disciples, as they neared the other side of the lake, I'm sure they never forgot that journey. Uh, and each in turn, in their private moments as they reached the other side, looking at the Lord again, maybe he'd gone back to sleep. They had a new perspective and the fear that washed over them wasn't one that produced panic like it did initially, but maybe the fear that washed over them was a, was a holy, deep, reverent fear that gave rise to a, a confident, maybe yet unnerving thrill of joy. They lived with him, but they underestimated him. They didn't understand his full power before this, and they certainly did afterwards. Um, what they didn't see in that moment uh, was that his power applied to their very situation. Some final thoughts. As, Christi as Christians, we recognise, don't we, that the biggest storm that we face in life is the one of sin. Um, uh, so a, a really nice, simple thing to take away um, and celebrate each day is that with faith in the Lord Jesus, we can pray, trust, and move ahead on the basis that we're forgiven of our sins. Um, we know too, don't we, that the Christian life uh, may have more stormy weather than calm seas, and as followers and disciples of the Lord Jesus, uh, um, to being prepared for the storms that will come is a wise thing to do. And the only way we can do that is by focusing on uh, this book. Uh, we have the encouragement in this story not to surrender to the stresses um, that these bring, but to remain resilient and recover from setbacks. And maybe when a squall approaches, um, lean into the wind and trust God in it. Jesus has been with his disciples, with his people now for 2,000 years, and yet we, like the disciples, underestimate his power to handle crises in our lives, don't we? We would admit, wouldn't we, that like the disciples, we focus on the wind, the rain, the storm, being saturated, all the effects of the things that we're going through, our human and worldly knowledge. This is how things are. This is how the world works. Rather than the other worldly, other worldly knowledge that pertains to the kingdom that Jesus was teaching that earlier that day, um, we have an amazing spiritual dimension to our life where we can have communion with, with the Lord. There's obviously a massive statement in this story that Jesus was in control. He calmed the waves. Um, he can calm whatever storm we may feel in our troubled hearts. Whatever it is, we can be confident that the Lord, the Lord controls the history of the world as well as our own personal desires. You look at some of the things happening in the news and you look forward to what might happen 12 months from now and you're glad that God is in control but maybe like me you too think well I hope that doesn't happen and I hope that doesn't happen but we have to rest and um, recognize that God is in control we know that the disciples didn't yet know enough about Jesus I'm not sure that we can make the same excuse given what we've got before us but I'm not saying it's easy um, they didn't see that his power applied to their own situation. Uh, we're, we're the same, aren't we? If only we recognised it and practised it and embedded this, um, and if we documented what we learned and shared, 
And if we didn't forget the lessons of the past, how great would that be? Uh, we're nearly done. Sorry, I've gone a little over time. Um, there was a time when King David was chased off his throne um, and um, he, we read that he slept. Uh, he didn't need to reign on his throne in order to sleep. He just needed God to reign on his. Um, and he's, his trust was that if God was only on his holy hill, his character was sure and his covenant firm, then David could sleep in the wilderness. We may lie down uh, at night sometimes in some wilderness of helplessness, hounded by cares that are far beyond our control. Uh, we may feel vulnerable with brooding uncertainty, job insecurity, future challenges that we're not really look forward to or we don't feel that we're ready for, uh, relationship, re relationship challenges at work in our, uh, or, or in families or with friends. And even then, we can read that God sits with crown and scepter, his holy hill untouched. And we read, he is by night a shield about me and by morning the lifter of my head. That's Psalm 3 and verse 3. We all have cares, don't we? And they may be many and they may be close, but we can think of something higher, uh, that God is mighty and closer. We're appealing to something higher when we're caught in the storms of life. We thought of Jesus in the boat, sleeping in the cox's position at the stern of the boat, where the rudder is and where the direction of travel is. Um, we are like the disciples, aren't we? We, re we revert primarily to solutions of the world and looking around us rather than making God's living word or our relationship with the Lord our first step. Um, I, it occurred to me um, of the thought of being with Jesus, being in a storm with Jesus and celebrating. That's quite a stark thing to say, isn't it? And certainly not celebrating the fact that the storm is there but celebrating the fact that you are with somebody higher, celebrating the fact that he's with you and be excited at how things may turn out in ways that you could never have imagined and how you'd be encouraged in the word of God and how God would be glorified in the process. One thing that in the story that uh, I wondered about was about the other boats. We read that other boats followed. Um, we don't read what happened to the boats. I can't imagine those other boats had time to get away. I wondered um, then if they saw what was going, it's likely maybe that they didn't see, but maybe they would have had glimpses because of the height of the waves. I just wondered whether there was a little thought in that of viewing storms that other people are in. Um, from our perspective, it's different from their perspective. One of the great things we can encourage each other with, isn't it, is that when we see somebody in a storm, we can reassure them that Jesus is always with them. So finally, um, two questions to leave us with. When the storm was raging and Jesus was sleeping, which looked more powerful? This is an important picture to remember because when the storms of life do hit, they almost always appear stronger to us than God's word. And the second question is coming, and you know what it is, and the most important question to ask at that moment is, oh, where is my faith? Let's pray.